Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. LA Opera artist-in-residence Russell Thomas has curated a digital recital on Songs of Protest, honoring and celebrating some of the unforgettable music that has galvanized social justice. Songs of Protest will be available to stream on LA Opera's website at www.laopera.org beginning on Friday, June 11th at 5 p.m. Pacific. In this behind-the-curtain conversation, Dr. Shauna Redman, professor of musicology and African-American studies at UCLA, speaks with Russell Thomas, soprano Brandy Sutton, and baritone Justin Austin about their journeys into and through music and how they are approaching this repertoire of powerful musical works. I'm really pleased to be back in conversation through programming at LA Opera and so pleased to be in conversation with all of you amazing musicians who carry the traditions that I write about that I study and teach about. And so that animation within the world is what makes my work possible. So thank you. And thank you for your commitments. In facilitating the conversation tonight, we'll be speaking about the Songs of Protest program that you are collaborating on. And we're interested first to understand how this program was developed and why, perhaps more importantly, why is it important that this happen now? When I was asked to curate programs, this was the first program um, that I wanted to do. Given all of the unrest socially in our country and around the world, um, this, the, given the murder of George Floyd last summer that sort of spurred all, all of this during a, during a pandemic, you know, um, my appointment came after that. And I felt like um, I needed to do something to continue that momentum of that movement uh, going forward in my work uh, with LA Opera. And the one thing I was missing in that process was a soundtrack, if that makes any sense. All of the, the, the social movements of generations past had a soundtrack. You know, the 60s had Motown, and, and um, we don't really have that now. And I wondered what that would sound like if we <laughs> brought that to the classical music stage with performers, trained performers, and what they would do with some of this repertoire that I love so much, like Nina Simone and Donny Hathaway and Marvin Gaye, and, and what would what they could do with that, and then intertwining recent works that were composed by uh, African-American artists, classical musicians as well, and jazz musicians as well, what they would do with that that repertoire. So that's that was sort of the the vision behind the program, finding sort of a soundtrack for this moment with Black people, by Black people, and telling our stories and, and, and putting our emotional energy behind this music. Yeah, I think that language of a soundtrack is actually super appropriate. And it's language that I use regularly in my first book, thinking about the soundtrack of political struggle throughout the African world in the 20th century. So I'm curious, if all of you could speak to the question of how and why you three, right? How did you all come into conversation around these questions, around these issues, both as musicians, but also as Black people in the world? And then also, do you feel as though, based on this language of having been knowledgeable of previous soundtracks, previous moments of dense kind of musical and political activity, if you feel as though you're inventing something for 
the classical stage? Are you pioneering something or are there other precedents that you see of that vein that are inspiring to you as you take up this project? I hope that we're inventing something. I mean, I think as creatives, when we step out to do a project like this, you always want to reinvent the wheel because it's been done in some form, you know, uh, before, just like Russell said, there was a soundtrack before. So we're going to do our soundtrack, but it'll be our version of it. And hopefully it will inspire others to want to do the same and then reinvent our wheel. Many of these issues, I think for me, it's tricky because I'm a single mother and I have an eight-year-old son who I can fear for his life, you know, with the current climate. And how do I teach him in a way where he is aware, but not perpetuating what's going on, you know, and, and it's hard, you know, I, I still don't know. I still don't have the answers. And so I, I know that he's watching me and I do these pick the things that I do carefully because I know that he's watching. And so something like this, I think it's, it's almost like a safe way of, of protesting, you know, something that he can see that is positive and, and still speaking toward who we are and, as Black people, but not making it something like we're so totally different from everybody else, but that we are equal, but still not ignoring what has happened before. Um, Because there were our ancestors who did things like these. I mean, Sam Cooke, Marian Anderson, uh, Leontine Price, and Paul Robinson, all of them who used their platforms as artists, you know, and while we are not completely you know, transformed today, you know, we're, we're still having to do the same thing that they did several decades ago, you know, but I definitely appreciate and do see the difference that their footwork did for me today. So we just keep doing it until, until we don't have to anymore. I completely agree. I personally feel like I have a responsibility as an artist to speak on the injustices that are happening in our world. Um, I also feel like I have a responsibility as a Black person to speak up on those issues as well. I feel like I have a responsibility as a child of two Black opera singers that have paved the way for myself and others to be able to do this art form that I don't think uh, was necessarily intended for us to uh, uh, participate in, but but here we are. And my mother was, you know, the first to X, Y, and Z, and my father was the first to X, Y, and Z. And to this day, I'm becoming 
you know, the first to do certain things. And in my opinion, I just feel like that is unacceptable at this point. I want to be an example to my young colleagues and to people coming even after me that you don't have to be Lean Team Price. You don't have to be William Morfield. You don't have to be famous to use your platform to speak out. My graduate recital from conservatory, my program notes were pointed. Every song that I sang had a dedication to a victim of police brutality. And I, I'll, I'll never forget the struggles that I, I went through as a young person being profiled and uh, going to high school in Lincoln Center and police assuming that I w- didn't belong and that I was, you know, in the wrong place, you know, at the wrong time, when in reality, I was just leaving rehearsal uh, from my school and, and I, I was not in the wrong place at the wrong time. I was at the right place at the right time. Um, and yet I still was uh, tackled and had my hands cuffed behind my back. And if it wasn't for a lovely, sweet, you know, older white woman that saw the whole thing go down, who knows where I would be today, you know? Um, and it's stories like that, that we hear countless times, you know, the, the, the shock that the nation, uh, you know, was in with George Floyd and this stuff that has gone on during this time of the pandemic, you know, the only thing shocking to the Black community was the amount of support that we have all of a sudden received, you know, to see, you know, Black Lives Matter painted on, on the ground, you know, to, to, to go pick up my things after, you know, Lincoln Center shut down out of my dressing room and to see all the billboards saying, Black Lives Matter, you know, having done a concert in, in, in Boston and I uh, jog in the mornings and, and I, I took a couple laps around the, the baseball stadium where the Red Sox play and outside of it, it doesn't say Boston Red Sox. It says Black Lives Matter. That is what was shocking to me. Um, and so th- this stuff isn't new. You know, the, 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 the first instance of police brutality that was caught on camera and showcased to the world was 30 years ago. You know, and and I I'm 30 years old, so we're talking about the for my entire existence, the world has known, has known about this stuff. Um, so how do we come together? How do we pull out our bullhorns and try to be heard in a way that isn't going really, honestly, isn't going to offend people, isn't going to hurt people. Because if if it, if we offend people and we hurt people, then then we're counterproductive. Then we're not actually getting forward. Um, and and for me as an artist, all I can do is use my platform to speak out against what I feel is wrong. And uh, I I admire you know the 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 whole movement of uh, kind of kneeling in protest that uh, Colin Kaepernick, the athlete, did and, and you know, lost his, uh, his job as a result. I chose to, to do that same action in support of him and my brothers and this movement uh, by using my Carnegie Hall debut as a moment where I took a knee and I sang Oh Freedom. And, you know, rather than, you know, uh, basking in, in, in the, the glorious sounds of Schubert, which I did as well, <laughs> um, I decided that I was going to use that as a time to kind of show the world that 
we are here and we are here to stay and we need to come together and we need to be together because that's the only way that is that is the only way that we can have freedom and justice for all of us and all of us all of us not some of us um so i don't mean to beat a dead horse but i feel like it's important for us to do something and this is i feel honored to have been you know asked to participate in this especially you know by russell who is someone that i admire greatly and I didn't even know he knew I existed. <laughs> and um, for me to have been asked by him it was, it was a great honor. And I feel like it's very important to, um, to this community, um, but also to the world uh, at, a, at a major platform like LA Opera to kind of showcase that. And I'll say to tie it all in to both Brandy's and Justin's points, um, being a single father, that's some of the, something that I deal with as well. Like, how do I teach my six-year-old about the injustices in the world without scaring him or making him feel like he has to be guarded and can't be free and have fun. Um, I use music. I use strange fruit to teach him about lynching. Uh, then we went to the museum in Alabama for a spring break and let him see and, and experience some of those things and watch some of the videos uh, that they show in the museums just to, to just Listen, he was over it in like 15 minutes. You know, he didn't want to hear about it anymore. But to put it in his mind that this is this is a part of our history as black people in this country. And, you know, and then to speak about Justin's point about being the first Justin's father, Michael, was the one of the first black tenors I ever saw that I ever saw on the stage, you know, and the ideas about us doing something in a safe way, but very pointed way using this music from one of the most dangerous times for Black people in this country. I think that time, unfortunately, is coming back, is reemerging. But um, what we know historically in that, that time in the 60s and late 50s was huge for the movement of moving Black people forward in this country. And using this music just makes sense to me. Using some of that music just makes sense to me. You know, we have a responsibility as artists to speak about these issues. And so that's what we're all trying to do. Southern trees bear strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. You know, I think the, the language of our ancestors are speaking to me constantly in what you're describing here, right? The choice that one has to make. Paul Robeson saying, every artist must elect to fight for freedom or slavery. I have made my choice. Right. Mm -hmm. Also thinking about Amiri Baraka, who said the music, the music, this is our history. So being able to tell these stories that are incredibly present. Right. This is not just history. This is not past tense. This is actually the ways in which we live now. I'd like to 
hear you all think together about why this space, why this space of the opera stage for these types of responses and for these songs, because it's a beautiful list of songs that we would kind of typically classify as popular, right? You have Nina Simone on this list, for example, someone I'm a huge admirer of and have written about. You also have Duke Ellington on this list, right? Which leans popular in the kind of public imagination because he's a recognizable jazz figure, but is not known for lyricism, which is quite often how people identify protest musics, right? Talk about how this particular venue is, is figuring into the list as you've curated it, and what is your relationship to these songs? How did you come to select them, and what do they mean to you individually or collectively? I'll start with the idea of, you know, to me, the strongest woman that I can think of historically for the movement uh, in terms of her voice and using her, her music and platform to push the movement forward was Nina Simone. And I'm a huge fan. I've been a huge fan since I was a little boy and heard the first things, you know, Young, Gifted and Black. When I heard that, and then when I heard, you know, Mississippi Goddamn, you know, when I heard these songs, I was like, wow, this is this is amazing. So um, why the opera stage for this for this repertoire? Because we do more, especially these guys, not me so much, but these guys, they do more than just sing opera. And fortunately, or unfortunately, people don't realize that we we can do more than just one thing, you know? Um, so I think it's important for us as um, artists to show people that we can do more than one thing and and to showcase artists that know how to sing jazz and classical and and R&B and belt a little bit, you know, show people that we can do all these things. But we're trained, educated singers who just so happen to be black, you know, and unfortunately, we have to deal with these struggles. And this this recital could have been all opera, but about protesting in, in a show. You know, there, there, there are arias where a character is protesting something in a show. We could have done that. But I don't think that would have been as interesting, personally. And, and the After Hours series is supposed to be mixing it up a little bit. So when I called these guys, I said, let's mix it up. You know, let's mix it up. And then we have the great composer, arranger, musician, Damien Sneed, who's going to um, put it all together and tie it all together. I just thought this was a perfect opportunity to sort of use all of our strengths, their voices, their artistry, their knowledge of knowing uh, how to sing other other genres. Let's show people that we can do, that these trained opera singers, you know, can do other things. It's also suggestive to me that these songs just go together. Right. Like we have to actually challenge people's listening practices. You have to hear all of these things together. Yeah. And Justin and Brandy, do you want to say something also about the selections and your relationships to them? Well, you know, I think it's important, like, you know, like Russell was saying, to kind of uh, showcase more than one facet of our artistry. I think something that most people find interesting, at least about my situation, is that the my exposure to 
uh, more popular music like R&B and jazz uh, was actually later on in my life. I, I was first exposed to opera and to classical music. Um, and it wasn't until my mother, when she retired from singing, she became a professor at the AU Center at Morris Brown College. They just got their accreditation back, so I'm very happy about that. But a very you know historic um, HBCU, and um, she was running the opera department there, and she would have me tag along uh, because she really, even at a young age, she valued my opinion about uh, certain things, and she wanted me to hear her students and to pick which ones I liked the most and who would I cast and which role and you know and such. And to my surprise, they influenced me in a way that I didn't even know was possible. They showed me the ways of Neo Soul and Donny Hathaway and his daughter Layla, and I was blown away. I was blown away. Uh, and it was a kind of a, a, a come to Jesus moment where I realized that classical music wasn't the only form of music that was breathtakingly gorgeous. And it wasn't the only form of music that the text was also extremely important. And it taught me some lessons that I still carry with me to today. And this concert uh, was an opportunity to kind of showcase both worlds where we can bask in the beauty of Blackness. For me, I will say when I was growing up, I went to Oakwood Elementary, Oakwood Academy, and Oakwood College. And a lot of musicians came through that school. And Take Six started there. They were Alliance at first. And now they're like a huge Grammy-winning acapella group. And I would hear singers like, and Angela Brown went there. And I didn't even know Angela Brown growing up, but... Um, she was there. She was one of the big names. I mean, Little Richard. So I got to hear a lot of different music. And um, because my family was so religious, I didn't hear a lot of secular music. My mother would turn on the college radio every morning to wake us up. So most of what I heard was Fred Hammond or the Winans or Commissioned and the Aeolians, which was the college traveling choir. And they sang classical and they sang gospel and they sang spirituals. And so I got a, a, a wide range of genres, but I didn't get a lot of secular. And I remember getting to like maybe high school, early college and hearing about singers like Donny Hathaway and um, Nina Simone. And I'm like, who are these people? You know, I, I didn't know till very late in the game. And um, even with, some of the songs on this program, I have to be honest, some of them I only heard of when Russell said, have you heard this? <laughs> and I'm like, what is that? And I went to look it up and I was like, oh my gosh, I got to sing this. But, and now it's going to be, it's going to be probably more thrilling for me because I grew up singing gospel and I didn't even know I had a classical instrument until I got to college and wanted so badly to be in the aliens from hearing them growing up. And so um, I took voice lessons and that's when my voice teacher was like, okay, you need to do music because I was a biology major. So to be able to uh, connect with some of these songs, I mean, one of the pieces I've been, I don't even want to give them away, but 
I've been like dying to sing. And I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do that with my classical voice. <laughs> and so I'm like, Russell, do you want me to belt on this program? So it's going to be thrilling for me just to, you know, figure out how to effectively uh, get these messages across again to our generation. And hopefully there's somebody like me who didn't know about it before, but will now know uh, as a result of, of this, this program. So. Yeah, that's a really wonderful coincidence about Oakwood, a colleague of mine in the School of Music had actually sent me a link of them performing Lift Every Voice and Sing just in this last year, right? That that song now known as the hymn, if not the anthem of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People has been taken up as kind of a protest tract by colleges, Stanford, Oakwood, all over the place, as well as musicians just out in the streets of New York, for example. So that's a beautiful coincidence, but also speaks deeply to these traditions that are still being revived constantly in response to this changing same of anti-Black violence, right? And I think part of that too is encapsulated in the curation of the songs as you're bringing in the Negro spirituals. So it's about a century ago that Paul Robeson revolutionized the concert stage in Greenwich Village by performing a concert singularly of the Negro spirituals, right? An entire set of them where they had not been featured in such a prominent way, even in the hands of the very talented Roland Hayes prior to him. And so to see that still carry significance for contemporary singers, not just because it's become a fairly um, recognizable part of the art stage performance, particularly for Black musicians, but also because it, they still have something to reveal to us, that these songs are still telling stories that are meaningful. How do you think about that? How do you think about perhaps some of what you mentioned, Brandy, these efforts at translation for different generations, different types of audiences when you perform these songs on stage? One of the things I often say about spirituals, I mean, I don't really sing them very often, to be honest. But I find that they've sort of been used as sort of this niche thing, but it, they're not niche at all. It's American classical music, you know? It's American classical music. It just so happens to maybe be folk music, but it's folk music from from also from an age of struggle, you know? Um, those singers that I admire, those the Black singers that I admire, they all program Negro spirituals all the time. And to really hear the text and the think to think like 150 years ago, people were singing this this music and it's still relevant and necessary. I think that's the most important word. To me, it's necessary to find that spiritual connection to this struggle that we find ourselves in still hundreds of years later, you know? These songs that were being you know sung out in fields uh, and sung in, in, in a in a church on Sunday because people needed to express themselves in a way that was just wailing out these songs. And, and, and a lot of times they are now packaged in this cute, you know, sort of classical music program of, you know, African-American singer gets up, they sing, you know, Schubert Brown's blah, and some, you know, some uh, Copeland and then tag it at the end spirituals. So when you start talking about, you know, Robus and programming an entire recital of spirituals, there are artists today they do that now, uh, and it's it's seen for for whatever reason as like revolutionary, and it shouldn't be because that's American classical music. The same thing with jazz. I think more 
classically trained singers should sing jazz because it is American classical music. That is music rooted and born in this country. And it came from the church into the popular realm. So I don't necessarily see it as popular music per se. I see it as American classical music. And I think more of us should sing it. I mean, I, don't, I just don't think I have the facility to. So I get people like Randy who knows how to do it, to sing it, you know? And I think that's very important. We have to find a way to keep the spiritual relevant and not just during a time of struggle and to bring jazz to the classical concert stage because it is American classical music. Absolutely. And as Robeson also argued, it's part of a global folk canon, right? That we are in struggle with people all over the world, a global majority, right? So to not allow ourselves to be isolated in that way, to allow the music to actually be the kind of calling card for us around the world was especially significant. I, I think it's important for us to continue to program these things, you know, like spirituals, but also to have these conversations because they aren't just, you know, nice little songs. Um, and I think historically black people knew that they would be looked at as these nice little songs. And in reality, uh, they were ingenious, you know, uh, uh, they were coded messages, you know, plotting escape you know, in broad daylight. Uh, they weren't allowed to communicate with each other. Therefore, they, they sang these cute little songs in order to do so. And I think that we are in a time where a lot of people still think that these are cute little songs. And that needs to stop because I personally feel that this pandemic has kind of uh, shown the ugliness of humanity in a certain kind of way. And I feel that we all can benefit from these spirituals and all come together because it wasn't just Black people that were in support of us. Even something as specific as the spiritual being performed in the concert hall itself you know, if it, if it wasn't for publishers and people like Antonin Dvorak, you know, we wouldn't, I wouldn't even have uh, an opportunity to catalog and, and to understand and to obtain a lot of this material. Um, so I think it's important for, yes, us Black artists to shed light on this and to perform these pieces, but also I think it's important for other artists to, to appreciate, perform, maybe, uh, as well, because... It's, we're talking about human issues. This isn't a, a, a black people problem. This is a very human issue. And I think that the coming together of it is only going to happen with literally coming together. curious what you've learned or come into closer intimacy with 
learned about yourself in this process, both as a creative, as a musician, as a citizen, as, you know, however you identify with whichever community you identify? Are there things that have been especially present for you as you've been preparing for this concert or concerts that may be similarly situated? And then I'm also curious as kind of a part two to the question, do you have expectations for your audiences upon having heard and experienced this concert? I'll personally say that I uh, have been challenged really coming away from the standard form of singing, if you will, trying to be as free and agile as I try to be in my classical music. For, for, for some reason, singing soul, I get stiff and, and trying to find that freedom. Um, and it, it, I had a hard time trying to access that. And then I I went back to what I would do, you know, if it was classical music, where I, I go back to the text and I go back to the message and I go back to why, why am I singing this? Why, why was this written? And when you go back to that place, then everything kind of reveals itself. And, and all of a sudden, I wasn't thinking about technique. I wasn't thinking about my delivery. I was think, just thinking about the piece and how it came to be and how it came to get in my hands, you know, by almost a miracle um, and be able to come with grace and come with gratitude and everything changed. So I, I've learned a lot uh, from myself. I've learned a lot about kind of both sides of, uh, of the coin, if you will, classical and, you know, non-classical. I'm currently in DC doing a new opera and how working on these soul pieces has helped my classical singing and vice versa. And uh, I just feel like they aren't too distant from each other, uh, how I was thinking before. I definitely, Justin, you've touched on something that uh, made me think about it's the music and the challenges for me as far as connecting the two, because, um, you know, we're used to singing classically most of the time, even then I heard Justin sing soul and it's amazing. I don't feel like he's stiff at all, <laughs> but, um, and, you know, sometimes for me, it would be the opposite. If I'm singing a classical piece, I usually get stiff and I'm thinking about language and rhythms and watching the conductor and staging and whatever else. And I feel like with this type of program, recital in general, but especially with something I can really connect to, it's it, it's helping me loosen up. Now, I probably will be nervous because a lot of people don't even know that I can kind of sing gospel. And I also haven't done it in a long time. So I'm like, the challenge has been how to uh, how to connect the two. Um, I will say that there have been a couple songs, and because some of these I have not performed before, that I have to learn. And in sitting down to listen to them, I haven't been able to get through a couple of them without crying and really putting my myself into the shoes of the person who wrote them and why and just not even just the person because they were speaking for so many others when they when they wrote the song and so 
um, just thinking of my people as a whole and what they had to deal with at the time this music was written. I mean, because I've been afforded so many opportunities that were not before. And so um, I guess what I have learned is that I didn't know enough. And, and hopefully we can change that for everyone else. And um, with that, I will say I don't have any expectations for the audience because everybody is different. So I can just hope that everybody will take away what they are supposed to take away individually for themselves from this experience, as I did for myself. I'll add that um, I'm not one of the performers on this concert. However, my expectation is that old adage, you know, that music is, is a universal language. So even if you don't personally understand the struggle that people have gone through Black people in, in the 60s and still today. Even if you don't understand it or you can't find a way to empathize with it for whatever reason, you know, if you can't find a way to empathize with the AAPI community and why they're asking to stop hate, you know, uh, if even if you think or you prescribe to this idea that Black Lives Matter is some sort of terrorist political organization as is being pushed in some media circles, you know, let this music and this text and, and these performers, um, that, that if you're not moved by that in some kind of way, then you're probably part of the problem, you know, and not to say that I, I know how you should feel about this music. However, you can't hear strange fruit or for women or something like this and not be moved by it. I mean, I was moved by four women at 11, you know, um, just, just to hear Lena Simone scream that last peaches just like moved me, you know, in such a, a strong way um, that my expectation for anybody that happens to come across this recital or, or an NLA opera subscriber or a student at some school comes decides to watch this recital to be moved by the idea that this universal emotive art form can some kind of way touch you and that you can understand or find some sort of empathy or sympathy for what's going on in the world right now through this music. Absolutely. And I think what all of you have drawn our attention to is something that I've long believed and used my writing to explain and clarify and insist on again and again, which is that music is a method, that it is used to actually develop different emotional and political capacities amongst the broadest spectrum of people possible. And I just want to thank you all for having contributed so immensely to that possibility, to the futures that were envisioned by the authors of the musics that you're performing in the coming weeks. And I look forward to listening. Thank you all so much. Thank you. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.